0: Well, there, there was a stage in my life when I gave up on prayer. I mean, I wouldn't have said that consciously if you'd asked me, Tim, do you leave in prayer? I would have said, of course, prayer is really important, but really, in my heart, I, I'd given up. And prayer didn't start like that for me. I remember being a really young kid, and as a family, we had a dog, and the dog got really sick, and my mom really loved that dog. And we we had to take him off to the vet, and it was like a week. He was at at this veterinarian hospital, and most likely the dog was going to die. And I was just terrified for this, and I didn't want my mom to have to suffer the death of a dog. So I prayed a ton for God to spare this dog's life. And at the end of the week, news came back, the dog was going to live. Right? And it was a clear answer to God, to, to the prayer I was offering up to God. And that dog lived to a ripe old age, old enough to stink terribly and bite anyone who came near it. <laughs> and that was, this is a defining moment for me when I, when I thought of prayer. It was this crying out to God and God hearing my prayer. And then later in life, I became a pastor. I was actually becoming a pastor that ruined my prayer life. Because as a pastor, I was caught off guard really by how willing and open people were to share their deepest burdens with me. And it was, I was humbled to receive that. I took prayer for them seriously. I considered it one of the most important parts of my job was intercessory prayer for the people who brought those concerns to me. But over time, the list just kept growing. And nothing was coming off the list Well, things did come off the list, but generally the things that came off the list came off the list because God did the exact opposite of what I was asking him to do, that I would ask for God to save a marriage and divorce papers got filed, that I would plead with God for healing and sickness or death came, I would pray for God to move in someone's job and, and, and they would get fired. And over time, those, those burdens just began to grow. And, and prayer, it sort of started out with me at the, the top of a mountain with a, a cool stream going beside me, feeling near to the presence of God, that I was confident he heard everything that I prayed. And over time, that, that cool stream became a torrential downpour, a river that cut right through that mountain, a canyon. And I was at the bottom, drowning under those burdens, asking for relief. And over time, I began to ask the question, the question that if you haven't asked, at some point in your life, you're going to ask. Does it even matter if I pray? God, are, are you listening? And maybe that's, that's where you are this morning. Or maybe that's where you've been, or maybe you've given up on prayer, or maybe your prayer life just is not what you want it to be. That wherever you're at, at some point, you're going to ask that question, God, are, are you even listening? And that place, or coming to that crossroads, really, for me, I, I felt there was one of two directions, right? The, the either, either there is no God listening. Right? The, the, sort of strangely, prayer is a reason I actually can, can understand why, if, if belief in God for you is difficult, or if you, if you haven't come to a place in, in your life yet where you believe in God, I understand, because, I mean, nothing could be more frustrating than pleading out to a God to intervene In your life, in a way that it it looks like you absolutely should intervene, and then no intervention comes. It's a pretty easy conclusion to draw that maybe no one was listening in the first place. But I didn't want to go there. At least I couldn't go there. But I just assumed, if if that's not true, if there is God, God listening to me, then I don't understand what prayer is. And I need help. And that's the course I took, and help... For me came the Psalms. They're a master guide to prayer. They've been leading Christians and Jews, God's people, for 3,000 years in prayer. And as a church, for the next seven weeks, we're going to enter their way of prayer. We're going to let them be our guide towards prayer. Let them direct us. Let them be our direction. And so this morning, we, we start at the beginning, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the starting point for what the Bible has is the way we should pray. And what's fascinating about the first two Psalms is they're not prayers. They aren't prayers themselves, because we're not ready yet. But the text that teaches us to pray doesn't start with prayer. And wherever you're at in life, most every human being at some point will pray, Whether you believe in God or not, whether you pray or whether you ask someone else to pray, this is a deeply personal and relevant topic because everybody prays. But the way of prayer, listen, it's fraught with frustration, with danger. Because on this way is a possibility of giving up hope that God's not listening or a rich life of faith that the Psalms unpack for us. And so we need help. To enter the way of prayer. And Psalm 1 and 2 our help. They function together as a prayer. Or as a pair. To get our feet onto the way. Onto the path of prayer. They're like a gate in many ways. And Psalm 1 sits on one side. Psalm 2 sits on another. And if you're going to enter into the way of prayer. You have to pass through Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. You can't, you can't go around them. You can't ignore them. You can't bypass them. Because if you don't start out on this path. On this way of prayer. You're going to. You're going to veer off. There's going to be dangerous roads ahead. In Psalm 1 and 2, they start by, by putting two things in front of you, two images for you to take a look at, for you to see, for you to observe, for you to meditate on. A tree and a king. And Psalm 1 sets you in front of a tree and says, look. And Psalm 2 sets you in front of a king and says, and says look. So let's start on this way of prayer, Psalm 1, the tree. In someone it's pretty obvious, there, there's, there's two different ways you can live in life, two different ways, the wicked and the righteous, the blessed and the perishing, the praying world and the non-praying world. And in both worlds, you're listening, there's, there's voices being spoken to you, and what world you're living in is depending on who you're listening to. So the praying world starts... In verse one, here's what the psalmist writes: "Blessed is the man, blessed is the person, who walks not in the council of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers." Now, the image there—it's it's of a council of people who are, are, in this case, wicked, and they're speaking, saying, "Come this way, go this direction, walk in this way, sit here." And so Psalm one starts off by saying, "Listen, if you go off down that road, if you listen to the counsel of the wicked, you're going to end up scoffing in cynicism." Now my assumption is is no one here thinks you're on that path. Not a single one of us thinks, "Oh, that's that sounds like me. I'm walking down that road." And yet, what Psalm one does is it, it forces a choice for you. That there's not thousands of voices that you're listening. There's not lots of different directions you can go. There's only two. There's the counsel of the wicked. The non praying world, or second, the praying world, which is developed in, in verse 2. So, blesses the man who doesn't go that direction, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now here's what's fascinating to me with, with Psalm 1 is it the Psalms, which is our text for prayer, our guide for prayer, doesn't start by saying, now listen, you better pray day and night. You better pray lots, you better pray all the time, you better pray day and night. Know what it says is you, if you're gonna pray, if you're if you're gonna pray, if you're gonna get onto this way of prayer, you have to meditate on the scriptures day and night. You have to be engaging the Bible day and night. Psalm 1 lays out two choices for you. You're either listening to the counsel of the wicked or you're listening to the word of God. And depending on who you're listening to, that's the direction your life is on. There's not another option. Psalm 1 doesn't give you a third way or a a, a mix between the two. No, there's two ways you can live, two voices you can listen to. And Psalm 1 says the, the way of delight, the way of blessedness is to listen to the word of God. And that idea saved my prayer life. Psalm 1, 2, and 3 saved my prayer life. So how? Why? Why is is meditation on the the Word of God so crucial to our prayer life? Well, prayer prayer is a conversation. And I think most people would agree with that, no matter your religious backing. Whether you pray or not, you probably say, yeah, prayer sounds like a conversation. It's you speaking, you're speaking to God, it's a a conversation. I, I think what I was... Was struggling with in prayer was that I thought I started that conversation. That I was speaking to God, pleading out with God, crying out to God into the void, hoping someone was there listening to me, hoping someone was there to intervene into my life. And it was starting to look like he wasn't listening. Like in the face of all the burdens of my world, there was no one there to intervene. Which is why I get to this place where I just ask God, are you listening? Psalm 1, 2, listen, it agrees. Prayer is a conversation. But not one I started. God has started this conversation. He has already addressed me. He's spoken to me first. The scriptures. And prayer, then, is not me crying out into the void, hoping he will answer. Prayer is the fact that God has spoken to me first. He's addressed me, and now I am to answer. God has already addressed me. And what I thought was going on was that I was frustrated, crying out into the void, God, are you listening? And the reality was he was asking the same question back at me. Tim, are you listening? And that thought, that idea saved my prayer life. Eugene Peterson unpacks this idea more for us. And in, in what I think is the best book on prayer I've written, it's called Answering God. He, he Unpacking Psalm 1, he says this about, about prayer. There's a difference between praying to an unknown God we hope to discover in our praying and praying to a known God revealed through Israel and in Jesus Christ who speaks our language. In the first, we indulge our appetite for religious fulfillment. In the second, we practice obedient faith. First is a lot more fun. The second is a lot more important. What is essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. God. And that's why the, prayers, or the Psalms begin by, by saying, listen, if, if you want on the way of prayer, it starts with meditation on God's word. That if you want to know how to answer God in prayer, you have to meditate on His word. The meditation is how you and I answer the God who has addressed us. Which raises the question well, what's meditation? What does that mean? What does the psalmist mean when he says, well, meditate on God's word? Well, meditation, in the words of, of Eugene Peterson, it's, it's a murmuring, absorbed, ruminative interest into the word of God. Realizing that this is the important word. The word that determines all existence. The meditation, it's hearing, it's responding. It's listening to a word and taking it in, absorbing it, understanding it, ruminating over it. In many ways, it's, it's like how you and I learned to speak. How you and I learned language. For example, I have a a three-and-a-half-year-old right now who's learning how to speak, and he learns, he's learned every word, he's learned how to speak by us speaking words to him, and then he speaks them back to us, right? He hears a sound, he thinks, his mind's at work, and then he regurgitates the sound back at us, right? And it takes a while for the sounds to match, and it takes a while for the meanings to match. So interestingly, Isaiah, my oldest, has started calling me Tim, Right? And I'm not Tim, Tim. I'm supposed to be Papa, but he keeps calling me Tim. And the reason he's calling me Tim is he hears my wife Misty call me Tim, and so he hears the word, he hears Tim, that sound, and then he he sees me, this bearded fellow who's always at his house, and he connects the two. Tim is bearded fellow, right? And and he, he he pulls them together. And what's even weirder is he doesn't say Tim like a like just Tim. He says it like how Misty says it when I'm in trouble, right? So it, it's not when Isaiah says Tim, it's not just Tim, it's Tim. Which is just it's strange, it's weird. But that's, that's all he knows, he's meditating, right? He hears the word, he repeats it back. He hears the sound, he regurgitates it back at me. And so every time a new sound is spoken at Isaiah, he's meditating. He's learning how this word, this, this spoken sound, redefines his whole existence. Now he's learning slowly, I'm not Tim to him. I'm Papa, right? that's, That's who I am to him. And that opens a different world to him. He's one of only two people, soon to be three, in the world who can use that name in reference to me. And he's meditating on it. He's learning that. And this is why meditation is so crucial to prayer. That God has spoken. He's spoken a word into your life. And you have to listen and dwell and take it in and let that word redefine everything for you. It's the most important word spoken. There's not a more important word spoken to you than what's spoken to you in the scriptures. So let's get practical. And how, how do you meditate? If it's important to hear this word, how, how do we meditate? And, and let me just say that the most simplest way, the most simple next step I can give you is, is in your times of prayer, read your Bible and then pray. Read your Bible before you pray. And this doesn't have to be a legalistic rule, right? If someone comes up to you in tears, pleading for prayer, don't say, hold on a second, let me open my Bible really quick. You open up the Leviticus, and then you got read to read them Leviticus before you pray to them. I'm not saying that. It's not a legalistic rule. But in your regular rhythm of prayer, if you know you're sitting down to pray, before you open up and begin to speak to God, open his word and let him speak to you first. But understand, reading, or just reading God's word, it's, it's not meditating. Reading's not exactly Meditating. In meditation, is more like my son hearing a word and thinking through its implication. What does it mean? What is it, how does this apply, right? And, and Isaiah is not thinking through that. He's three and a half, but he, he's doing that work. And that's what happens when you and I meditate on God's word. So read slowly. Take your time. And if you're not in a regular rhythm of of reading the Bible, I'd encourage you, we have an Open Here series which gives daily emails and and bookmarks that goes along with our sermon series. It's a place to get started. In fact, even the next seven weeks, we're focused in the Psalms. We'll be reading Psalms, so use the next seven weeks to to read those Psalms and let them guide you into prayer. But read your Bible, then go to pray. Pray. And again, it's it's not just reading; it's it's meditating, it's chewing. And, and I would just I would say four questions whenever you meditate: four questions that are worth asking, worth using to meditate. And this is again not a legalistic rule, but just this has helped me in my own meditation. And they won't be on the screen now; they'll be on the screen later at the end of the sermon. So if you don't get them all now, it's okay. But but here are the four questions: Anytime you read a passage of scripture, meditate, unpacking these questions. First, being what, what is this? What does this text? What does this passage reveal to me about God? What does it show me about who God is? What He's like. Question two, what, what sin does this text show me I need to repent of? When I read this, this this passage, what is it clear that I am not I'm not doing that? I'm doing the opposite. And third, what what promise does this passage make to you? That you need to remember, that you need to take in, that you need to, to make a part of your prayer life. God, help me remember and live this promise. And fourth, what what command? Does this passage ask you to keep? What's it saying? Listen, you've read this, now you've got to go do that. I have four questions, and as you begin to wrestle and unpack those, those that, that will lead you into prayer, right? To thank God for who he is, what he's like. To repent of things you've done wrong. To ask God help to live in to, to the commands he's, he's given to you and to, to thank him for the promises that he's, he's made to you. And that requires reading slow, listening to the text, meditating, and not just reading. Because Psalm 1, listen, it's abundantly clear. You and I, every person in this room, we're meditating, we're listening to someone. It's either the, the counsel of the wicked. And if you listen, if you listen to them, listen, the, the Psalm 1 is clear, it's going to lead you down a path where you'll become chaff. You'll lack substance. The winds of life will just blow you around. Your life will be determined on on your circumstances. If life's going well, you'll be great, and you'll you'll feel like you're you're, you're doing well, but the moment the wind blows, you'll be blown wherever life takes you. You'll lack substance, and ultimately, you'll be crushed by the the circumstances of of life. That's what I love about Psalm 1, too. It doesn't just say, are you listening to the counsel of wicked? Because all of us would say no, but what it asks us is, is, are you chaff?" The circumstances of life blow you around. Is your life and joy dependent on how well your life is going? If it is, if it is, you may be chaff. So someone says, listen to another voice. Don't meditate on the counsel of the wicked. Listen to the word of God and you'll become a tree. With deep roots that go far into the ground. That when the winds of life blow on you, you, you're not going to fall over. Where the deep roots, they, they go so deep, they have nutrients. So even when it stops raining, stop, there's, no, there's no water, and, and your life becomes a desert, your roots go so deep, it doesn't matter. And even better, in the best moments of your life, when you're supposed to produce fruit, your joys will be greater, right? Your, your fruit will, have, will be sweet and nourishing to you and to those around you. Spend a life meditating on scriptures, and you will be blessed, whole, so who are you listening to? That you can't answer God in prayer if you're not listening to God. That you can't pray if you don't listen. So who are you listening to? But that leaves a, a question, a major question unanswered. Some of the tension I raised at the beginning of the sermon, which is, is what, okay, what do we do about all the junk in our lives? The things that make us want to give up on prayer, give up on God. What, do, what does God have to say to those things? Enter Psalm 2. Psalm 2 starts right where the place where my prayer life struggled. Here's where it begins. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their pawns apart and cast away their cords from us. In Psalm 1, it was about meditation, and Psalm 2 is also about meditation. That the word plot there in verse 1 is the word for meditate, the Hebrew word for meditation. And in Psalm 1, people are meditating on God's word, how to live it, how to do it, how to take it in. And in Psalm 2, people are meditating against God's word, how to suppress it, how to reject it, how to, to get rid of it. So these things that do this, these kings, these powers, our world is a world that meditates against God and his Word And these things that do that are impressive. And you and I, listen, even though Psalm 2 makes list different things that he's thinking about, this, this psalmist is thinking about, that, that conspire against God and lead him to frustration and prayer, we all have things that we look at that look too powerful for God, that look like too much. There's no point to pray this in the face of God. The, our kings, which plot against the, war, the, the rule of God in our lives, they're different and yet they're the same. They discourage us from taking our concerns to God. And so what are they for you? What's the thing in your life that you look at and you say, what, what can prayer do in the face of that? And they could be small things, just like raising, raising kids. It could be huge things like cancer and death, disease, injustice, Poverty. That as someone who is is committed to um, to pro-life the pro-life cause and someone who believes every human life is created in the dignity and image of God I've been especially discouraged over the last few weeks by the release of the many Planned Parenthood videos that have come out and whether you're pro-life or not I encourage you to, to watch them maybe I'm wrong about abortion but I at least encourage all of us to watch those and to ask ourselves ask ourselves questions like one what what kind of culture haggles over the prices of human organs to be sold? Or what kind of, of culture has use for the, abort, ab, ab, the organs of aborted human life, but no use for the human life that provided those organs? As I've watched those videos, I just feel helpless looking at that, a culture that looks at human life in many different ways and says, and, and determines human dignity on how old the life is how smart it is, what race it is. To be a Christian and to live in a world and say every human life is made in the image of God, worthy of protection and value, its own unique story, it should get my my love and my grace my kindness. We live in a world in many ways who just rejects that outright and fights against that. And hearing that, or seeing that, I just feel helpless, helpless to give grace and offer hope to, to women who have had abortions to to convince a world that every human life is actually valuable and actually made in the image of God that we all have those things for me it's it's been that over the last couple of weeks but what's it what is it for you that you look at in your life and you say what good is prayer in the face of all of that what could God possibly do or maybe you've, you came in with a lot of faith God can do anything and Your expectations have just been crushed again and again and again. That's why we have Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is God's response to that world. God's response to those powers, those kings, those realities that are meditating against him and his word. God responds in two ways in Psalm 2. First, he laughs. But don't skip over that. The things that you and I look at and think are are unassailable, God thinks is a joke. The things that we look at and think we could never defeat or never see go down, God scoffs at those things. And laughter should restore our perspective. That whatever those things are for you, God laughs at them. And that laughter gives us a different perspective, a different world to look into. So that's what he does first. And then second, God says this in in verse 6. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's his second response to this world plotting against him. So what does that mean? What's going on there? When God God saw this world plotting against him, what he did was he he took a nation for himself, Israel. And we spent the last several weeks going through the life of Moses and him freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And so God creates this, this nation or chooses this nation, Israel, for himself. And then once Israel's in the promised land, he takes a king. An ordinary boy from this ordinary nation, and he sets him, this king, in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And God is saying, that's my answer to a world plotting against me. And so verses 7 through 9 in Psalm 2, it's, it's that king speaking. That king speaks up, right? I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. That king is saying, God is going to do all of this for me. And then in verse 10, God speaks up again and he says, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Pay homage to this king or die. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. You perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. I mean, it's a warning shot across the bow. And yet when I read Psalm 2, I have two reactions. One, that. This is crazy. And the reason is, is, Israel's a backwoods nation that no one has heard of, that has no power, doesn't have a good military, and the kings mostly were massive failures. If you've ever read the history of Israel, Psalm 2 is a bit of a joke in light of all of that. And yet, Psalm 2 suggests this ordinary person from this ordinary nation was going to confront all of the injustice and oppression and, and, and evil in this world and was going to defeat it. It's crazy. And secondly, this is completely, it's underwhelming for me. That what good is is this going to do? And better yet, who's going to take this seriously? What good can a local king of Israel with no military and no might and no power and no respect, what can he do in, in the face of a world plotting against God and his world? It is that question that shut off my, my prayer life for a long season. And it's probably what makes many of, of you struggle to pray as well. We don't want that God. We don't want the God who underwhelms us, right, who says, I'm going to do something. And it's going to be uh, a guy you've never heard of in a nation that has no power. He's going he's gonna to take care of it. And we're like, is there someone else I can ask about this? Someone else I can pray to? We don't want the underwhelming God. And that's why Psalm 2 sits at the beginning of the Psalter to say to you, if you're going to enter the way of prayer, you have to see, this is how God works, often in underwhelming and unimpressive ways. And if you're going to pray, you have to come to terms with that. Or else you'll just pray to the God you want. And not the God who's really there, who's spoken to you, who's started the conversation with you. And so in light of that, let's ask some really, really hard questions. Do you believe in a God who will let really terrible things come into your life? Do you believe that, that God might not do something that's completely clear to you, that he absolutely should act in this way, that he's not going to act in that way? In fact, he may act in the exact opposite way of that. Do you believe in a God like that? Because listen, there's, either there's no God or there's a God exactly like that. Who lets terrible things come into your life. Who does the exact opposite of what it appears he should do. That's the God we often get. And Psalm 2 is saying you have to come to terms with that. If you're going to enter into the way of prayer so that you don't pray to the God who fixes all the problems and and, and, and always does the thing you want him to do. That God is not there. What you have is a very different God. All right, we want the fix-it God who, who takes action and gets things done and has, has unlimited power and, and uses it whenever he wants. And that's just not Psalm 2. And what happens then is if you want that God, the fix-it God, when stuff keeps breaking in your life, you'll either give up hope or you'll just stop going. You'll stop praying. The Eugene Peterson, again, he puts the problem to, to, to us like this. The left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing, or to the part of God that we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us and to everything He speaks to us. And in our speaking, which gathers up our listening and answering, mature in the great arts of conversation that is prayer. you, you can't pray if you don't listen. And I promise you, God is going to say things you do not want to hear, both in this word and in the course of your life. That He's going to do things in your life that you don't want him to do. And in those moments, there's not another God to go to. There's not another God to talk to. That is the God we have. And that's why Psalm 2 sits here at the beginning of the way of prayer, the Psalms. To observe this king, his choice, how God has chosen to enter into this world. How God often appears powerless, underwhelming, unimpressive. And yet, it's clear, Psalm 2 made Israel a a nation of prayer. I mean, read the Psalms. This is a nation committed to prayer. And they saw their king, maybe unimpressive to us, but they saw that king set on Zion and they prayed to their God ceaselessly. So why? How? Well, let me answer that question with, with a story. I grew up in, in Indiana where every boy had a basketball goal in their driveway. I mean, it was just weird. Every boy had a basketball And we would play for hours out in our driveway. And looking back, it's like, how? That just sounds boring to me now. Like, if I went out and just played basketball for five, I don't think I did. It's not interesting. And yet, I played for hours upon hours. Why? How? It's because when I was playing late at night, it wasn't just, I wasn't just shooting baskets in my driveway. I was playing for Indiana University, and we were down two, and there was one second to go, and I had to make the shot. And I just played that story over and over and over and over again all through my childhood, right? You probably did something similar. And what Israel knew was appearances are deceiving. It looked like they were just shooting baskets in their driveway, right? Some local king, some unimpressive boy from some backwoods town... On Zion, it's not going to do any good. That's what appearances were, but Israel knew appearances could be deceiving. That there was a divine conspiracy at loose. God had set his king on Zion. God was loose in the world, just not the way most people would expect. So Israel prayed, believing that. They prayed, believing that the king set on Zion was a sign God was at work and on the move. And if Psalm 2 drove Israel to their knees to pray, how much more should it drive you and I, who are Christians, in light of Christ, drive us to pray? That yes, the forces of this world took counsel against the Lord and his anointed. And his anointed, that word in verse 2, it's Messiah. The Hebrew word for Messiah is anointed. So yes, our world has taken counsel against the Lord and his Messiah. And yes, God's Messiah was completely underwhelming. An ordinary boy from a town that no one had heard of called Nazareth. And the only reason you would have heard of it, because a funny accent came out of that town. No one respected that place, and no one in Rome had ever heard of Nazareth. And even worse, when this Messiah entered into Jerusalem for the last time, when he got to Mount Zion, here's, here's his victory speech on his way in. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This Messiah comes, he he doesn't even get on a horse. He's on a donkey. I mean, that just looks pathetic. And even more than that, he's humble. He's going to walk into this powerful city where Rome sits in charge of the Jewish people on a, a humble donkey. That's God's answer to the forces of this world. And yet God was clear from the beginning at his baptism in Luke 3, God spoke Psalm 2 over Jesus when he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's Psalm 2, God saying, this is my king. Right? As for me, I've set my king in Zion, my holy hill. God was saying Psalm 2 is coming true in this life, the life of this person. And if you lived at that time, it would have been completely underwhelming to you. The kings, the powers of this earth, they set themselves against him. They took counsel against this Messiah, And they put him on a cross. And they cast off his cords when they nailed him to the tree. And he who sat in the heavens laughed. The Lord held them in derision. And he spoke to the powers of this world, to Pilate, to Rome, to any force that would oppose God. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We expected a throne, but we got a cross. And on Sunday, when Jesus broke out of his tomb, Psalm 2-6 finally made sense. When God raised Christ from death to sit him at the right hand of the Father, the throne of God, the true Mount Zion. And if you enter the way of prayer and you listen to this king, you look at this king, you'll spill your heart in prayer. I mean, his power is limitless. He conquered death. There is no force in this world that you will face in this life that he cannot overcome, that he cannot defeat, that he has not already defeated. He's, his power is limitless. He defeated death itself. But also remember this king's life. He was poor. He suffered. And his life ended because God didn't answer his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if, if it be your will, let this cup pass. God, don't make me do this. And God was silent and led Jesus to his cross. And yet Jesus never gave up praying. He prayed all the way through onto his death. And he died with the Psalms on his lips. He died with Psalm 22 on his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus spent his life meditating on the scriptures, which meant his, his roots went deep, deep into the ground, so deep death itself didn't even cut him off from life. And that all he did, he prospered. Whether, whether he was sealing the sick or whether he was being nailed to a tree, Jesus, in all that he did, prospered. And so how could you and I ever fail to pray to this king? How could I ever wonder if, if he is actually listening to me, even when he's silent, even when I'm not sure why God isn't entering the burdens ...of this world, you and I can know with confidence that he is listening, that Jesus faced the silence of God... ...so you and I never would have to. he, He is listening, even if he doesn't answer the way you and I want. And so God may seem silent at times. And you and I may want to give up on prayer. But if you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, know that when you pray, you're not praying into the void... You're not praying out, hoping there's a God listening to you somewhere. You're praying to a God who's already spoken to you. He started this conversation. And the first word that he spoke to all of us is Jesus. And as Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray.